Today on Let's Talk Limbic Sparks, I'm with Amy Belladin, Chief Marketing Officer of Armando Cabral, a men's luxury footwear brand that combines African artisanal textiles matched with bespoke Italian craftsmanship. I'm Kevin Perlmutter, Chief Strategist and Founder of Limbic Brand Evolution, a brand strategy and neuromarketing consultancy that taps into emotional insight to strengthen connections between brands and people. The limbic system part of our brain supports emotion, motivation, behavior, and memory. And I'm curious how my guests are creating what I call limbic sparks, which happen when emotional motivation meets brand desire. I love talking with brand leaders who are turning emotional insight into a competitive advantage to drive business growth for the brands that they serve. Amy, thank you so much for joining me today. And let's talk limbic sparks. Good morning. Let's do it. I am so thrilled that we are talking today. First of all, how are you doing? Really well, thank you for asking. It's been a really like crazy busy year so far. I started my role with Armando um, in the CMO capacity in January and it's been quite a wild ride so far. Whenever we talk, I'm so struck by your energy and your enthusiasm. So I'm curious, what motivates you and inspires your daily approach to life? Oh my goodness, so many things. That's gonna be a little hard to edit that down. Um, first and foremost, I would say art, um, fashion, art, things that are really visually intriguing, I really motivate me. Um, seeing other projects that are designed really well and deliver something really good uh, for their audience, also super motivating for me. And I think also too, just good conversation with people that I really enjoy talking with, like good debate, um, things like that really, really, really help keep my energy level and my motivation level really high. When it comes to the people in your life that you're closest with, what is it that you <laughs> value most in those relationships? Um, creativity, genuine smarts, sense of humor. Um, but I think above all, I really value directness. I really, really appreciate it so much when people are just like, just give it to you straight no matter you know <laughs> how uncomfortable it might be. I really, really, really value uh, direct conversation, direct feedback, and just very upfront and straightforward discussion. Who has time for the runaround? It just doesn't, it doesn't work anymore. We just, we're too busy. Well, I'm too busy. And I'm also, I have to confess, I'm not good at it. Like I'm not good at like, wait, did you not mean what the thing that you just said? <laughs> I don't know if it's because I've been, living in New York for too long is just so accustomed to just like just putting it out there but I have discovered through to, over time that it's a it's kind of mingling through some of the subtleties of things is maybe not my best strength. I want to know even more about you and I want listeners to know more about you. So one way I like to do that is talk about brands and relate people to brands. Can you share three to five brands that paint a picture of what you're all about and why you chose them? Oh, wow. Yes. Um, well, Armando Cabral probably comes first and foremost to mind. <laughs> um, but outside of, of the brand that I serve, I would say NASA, Sunbaskets, and Lego. Ooh, talk about those. <laughs> I want to know why. <laughs> we got to know why, right? NASA. Totally. So NASA, yeah, I think NASA is one of the coolest things ever, even as a little kid, you know, watching, um, watching all of the space shuttles launch and just kind of like being 
that kid like saucer eyes watching space exploration happen. I've always been really captivated by it. And there's a part of me that has always taken a little chunk of that rocket scientist with me wherever I have gone. Um, and just kind of embracing things that are more um, data-based and scientific. Um, it really, really, really is a part of my personal DNA. So NASA for sure. And the other brands you mentioned? Uh, Sunbasket, oddly, um, I realized that up until, oh gosh, uh, maybe early pandemic, it was not necessarily somebody who really appreciated cooking or cooking at all, unless it was for like a big holiday and there was a reason to like go kind of crazy. Um, but no, I joined Sunbasket um, during the pandemic because I wanted to, to find an outlet for some creativity. And I thought maybe cooking might be one of those things. And I go found really well, oddly. Like I didn't expect that to be an experiment that was going to work. I kind of tried it on a whim and it was like, well, if I don't like it, I could just not do this. Um, <laughs> just go back to microwaving everything. Um, but I just, in general, I just really embraced it. And again, there's a lot of that scientific creativity mashup in there that I really, really, really love. So I think that's another, another brand I would say that, um, that I think represents me as a person you know, or a brand that I believe in that I participate with. Tell me about Lego. Lego has always, I think, been an interesting brand. I ended up digging into it a little bit for a project many, many, many years ago. And I discovered that outside of what I knew it to be, it was like amazing, fun company with a, you know, a huge following, including a lot of my contemporaries. Um, and they had really done an amazing job of capturing their subculture. And they were like the first brand to really kind of get into the get into some of the markets that were kind of an offset of theirs. So what I mean by that is there were a lot of private collectors and people working in their own workshops, creating their own custom pieces for Lego that were off brand, but they were doing it because they couldn't find the things that they wanted in their Lego sets from Lego. Huh. And at first Lego was like, you can't do this cease and desist, like get the lawyers on it. And eventually at some point, Somebody in their organization was like, wait a minute, we should embrace these people, bring them into the fold, like bring them part, bring them into our community and start certifying them as official like Lego, Lego creators. And they really, you know, I think were the first brand to really, really, really kind of actively get their community behaving around their brand in a way that the community was driving, not necessarily a way that the brand was driving. I always thought that was like one of the coolest things ever. It, it's so brilliant to make that flip from protection to open source. It's just so it, cool. It's so funny to me too, because I think even in the world of fashion, we used to do a lot of like classify as retail recon where you'd go to different stores and you'd have to find crafty ways to get your phone out and take pictures. I mean, even as recently as like 10 years ago or five years ago, it was really tough sometimes to get photos of your retail experience. And now stores are like, come in, take pictures of everything, film a video. There's a section of the store we've designed for you to do this. Wow. Do this in. Whereas before they would like yell at you and tell you to get out and you had to find crafty ways of like getting your friends in a photo. Them <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Crop that out. <laughs> get the bit of information <laughs> that you were after. Wow. So talking about brand experiences, help, help me understand, describe the, uh, your perfect brand experience. 
I love and appreciate brand experiences that are fully immersive. I really, really love it when brands kind of bring you into their space and make you feel like it's completely their world. Um, everything from like the big stuff, like what drew you in? Maybe there's a physical location and you kind of open the door and you're immediately transported to a new place. Um, I really, really, really think um, that immersion is so very important in any brand experience and building a world around um, a brand. I think it's what does it for me. So I've loved watching your career uh, evolve. We, we met about 20 years ago, if you could believe that. Um, I know, at, it's crazy, at, isn't it? <laughs> 20 years ago at an, age, at an ad agency where you were an art director. And since then, you've had um, a, a few other agency side jobs. But mostly you've been on the client side in creative director roles as a creative strategist, now as a chief marketing officer. And your LinkedIn bio says that you work at the intersection of strategy, creativity, and inclusion. Can you talk about that? Sure, absolutely. I know it is weird to think back. <laughs> wow, first of all, 20 years doesn't seem possible, but here no, we are. Not even close to possible. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it was 20 years ago. Wow. Um, yeah, I started my career in a design discipline space. I actually started my first job was working at a fairly well-renowned uh, corporate branding agency, and I was really bored. I gone through this, you know, gone through this design program and you graduate. And that was sort of what the design program at the school I attended had kind of developed you into. Like you get a design job, you get it as a really, you know, if you've really done really well, you're working at a big reputable agency and you're designing logos and stationery for really, really big clients. And maybe at this point in time, they have a website and you get to work on some of that stuff too. Um, so, um, that's where I started. And I realized when I got out of school, I was, I was not feeling very challenged and I wasn't enjoying the work. So I kind of took a moment to take in and think about some of the things that really inspired me, like in particular art and wanted to figure out where it was that art was actually being used for, uh, you know, creative purposes within an industry. And that's what landed me to fashion this fashion was always the, the place where people were pushing boundaries. They were, you know, using um, artistic tools. They were using creative directors and creatives who were really creating like pieces of art as part of their marketing or part of their creative plan, or even sometimes part of their clothes. And I just thought that was like the coolest thing ever. So my mission after I spent a year in corporate design was to find a job in fashion which ironically is how I ended up at the agency we used to work at. We had a couple of fashion clients and I started freelancing on some of those. And then I started working in beauty. And I think beauty is where I really, really, really uh, spent a lot of time after that because it was at the intersection of like geekiness and science and mm -hmm. <laughs> amazing boundary pushing creative. And I really felt like I found my niche there. Um, so and my career has evolved over time out of maybe more of a visual practitioner space into more of a strategic role. Um, and a lot of that actually stemmed from my time working at Clinique at Estee Lauder. Um, I had a really amazing mentor there who really helped me start seeing uh, the scope of some of the projects we were working on and really embracing them from 
not just an artistic point of view, but also with a, a level of business acumen. And, and I really, really, really um, found that, you know, I, I, I really, uh, I thrived in that kind of an environment with that kind of work where it was a good balance of both. Um, so now working at Armando Cabral, um, I had spent about six years on his advisory board before joining in this capacity. So I had spent a lot of time with Armando and the brand and it was absolutely something that I knew I wanted to do. Um, and as soon as it became possible to, to, to make the switch, I knew for sure and for certain if it was offered to me, I was absolutely going to say yes. Um, wow. And a lot of that is just, you know, thinking about where we are as a society and you know, what can we do as individuals and marketers to really push for the things that are really pushing for good, pushing for change, pushing for inclusion for everyone. And I think, you know, Armando's brand is one that absolutely champions that, lives that and breathes by that motto. And I'm really proud to be a part of it. It's fantastic. And I, I can't wait to get into that story of that brand <laughs> that you're working with and um, and hear more about it. Uh, before we go there, you also talked to me about, uh, once we were talking about this idea of uh, the creative strategist role, mm. how that was a role that you had. Where, where was that? Was that, at, was that at Nordstrom? It was at Nordstrom. Nordstrom. So tell me about yep. the creative strategist role, because that was kind of uh, innovative at the time you did it. <laughs> it was. I mean, I would even like say, I think it still is. Um, I think it goes by different names now, but at the time, uh, the, the person who was heading the department had a really smart idea, and that was to bring in people who were really adept at merging the business acumen of any sort of retail-oriented company and really understands essentially how to sell things, how to operationalize things, how to take something from like a little idea and make it into a really large-scale idea. And they brought me in as a specialist on the beauty business at the point in time where they were undergoing tremendous transformation. They had new buying leadership on that division, and they were really recognizing that they needed to make an adjustment in that space in order to not just remain competitive with Sephora and Ulta, but to really pull ahead of some of those other retailers and offer consumers a holistic experience. So you can have everything that you would ever want in the wide world of beauty and skincare, amazing services, people you can really like form relationships with really a, a completely inclusive experience and then have that be sort of the lead into the rest of the store. You're not familiar with Nordstrom. It is the most amazing place to shop and has the absolute best customer service. And we were able to, to embark on a really amazing beauty journey with that project in that capacity. And that role was really, you know, one that I really enjoyed is it freed me up from having to do all of the execution, plan the photo shoots, mm -hmm. get the photographers, get all the art direction um, organized and things like that. I, I realized at that point in my career that there are other people who are so great at that. And, you know, it, it, I wouldn't say that it wasn't my first skill, but I, I wasn't better at it than the art directors and some of the creative practitioners they had on staff. You're absolutely amazing. You once said to me that you're seeing um, a trend and you talked about it as the hybridization of roles in marketing and you being a chief marketing officer with your background, uh, you told me is a prime example of that trend. Can, can you talk about this hybridization and why it's so important for brands to understand this and maybe even lean into this shift? Absolutely. 
I think um, a couple of things, like over the course of the last, I mean, as recently as like two to three years, I feel like what we've started to see in the marketing space is more of a move to build culture around a brand and to bring culture into a brand versus maybe having as much of a focus on the nuts and bolts of um, uh, like promotion or amplification. And those still are very important components to marketing. But I think we're really starting to see a moment now where um, what's working as far as building, building amazing brands, building affinity for brands, building brands that are going to have a lifetime value for their audience is really in the cultural space. And I think hybridized roles that embrace more of maybe a diverse, there's some backgrounds that might be a little bit different than a traditional marketing background um, are definitely having, I think, an impact on the brands that recognize that that culture needs to be built. I think that um, hybridization helps companies where you might have an experience where the site and the marketing experiences are somewhat different because maybe they're led by and worked on by different teams. Consumers have reached a point of sophistication where they don't need to know necessarily how your organization works and how they're served, like specifically, but they do want to feel like there isn't a a handoff or a touch point change anywhere across the ecosystem. They want to see things that are relevant to them like 360 degrees. And I think that the hybridization part component to um, some of the marketing shifts really um, would help companies embrace that maybe a little bit more closely. Wow. That is so important for any brand to think about, but I, I would suspect even more important in fashion and luxury where you're creating a lifestyle and you can't have these inconsistencies in the lifestyle that you're portraying. So exactly. When you're when you're doing work for fashion luxury brands, you're also relying more on imagery than words. There's a lot more show and less tell. So so where do you get your inspiration to create these distinct lifestyles, identities, and experiences for fashion and luxury brands? It, most of my inspiration comes from art. Absolutely, um, other photography visual arts, sculpture, things like that really, really, really serve as a huge well of inspiration for me. I really um, enjoy, you know, finding either old and new fashion magazines and just spending a day like, <laughs> the magazine of Palooza on my floor, just going through and looking at, you know, what's happening in culture. And in particular, revisiting galleries and studios and things like that, and just seeing what, what is happening um, and what's out there is, extremely inspiring to me. Um, and I think that really helps feed like some of those ideas. And where the brand Armando Cabral is concerned, Armando really is the chief visual, like the visionary for the brand. It's incredibly rewarding to look at some of the vision that he's come up with and like help translate that into what might become a campaign or a marketing arm or um, a communication is really, really quite cool. But it's amazing to, to work with somebody who is the artist, who is the visual catalyst for the brand um, and not have to pull that necessarily as much from outside sources with the exception of when we're partnering with somebody directly, which we do pretty often. 
And and thinking about the beginning of some of those projects, I mean, traditionally, there's a creative brief and all that discussion that you're used to from your career. I don't know if it's as formal in such a small environment, but you have to start with some basis of information. What is most important to you uh, in that initial briefing to help you get to great work? What are you looking for to inspire great work? I think I I would be looking for something that is short, direct, and clear. Um, I think if you want a creative team to come back with amazing creative ideas, you have to let them do what they're best at and trust that they're going to come back to you with some really incredible, innovative ideas and approaches to solving the problem with the challenge that you've outlined. And I think it's interesting that there's so much emphasis on the brief and what that brief is and making sure it stays brief. But I think that sometimes the best projects are the ones that glean the most, the best outcomes in my experience are the ones where the, the brief is not like the end. It's the beginning of an ongoing dialogue and conversation. It's not necessarily the thing that all of the components of the project are hinged on. Um, I think that sometimes we tend to dare I say, overvalue the brief a little bit, <laughs> or yeah, at well, least we put a lot of pressure and emphasis on a one document. And it's not surprising that it's difficult to be, to write something super perfect when you haven't really explored any ideas yet, right at the beginning of a project. So I definitely am more probably in favor of catalyst discussion, discovery, and then process. And then you know, hopefully towards the end of that process, you've arrived at a really amazing place. You've got something that absolutely solves your problem. It's smart, innovative, and maybe even unlocked new doors or discovered something you weren't expecting. I, I love that word catalyst. Um, the, the brief needs to be a catalyst for ideas. It, it can't try and solve the problem because it's actually the beginning of the process. And the people who are going to solve the problem most creatively haven't started their work yet at that moment. Mm -hmm. So yeah, briefs that try and solve it too early are actually handcuffing creatives into something that may not be their best work, which is absolutely an interesting and conundrum. It is. And it's, I, you know, looking at it from both sides, it can be hard. It can be hard to trust that your creative team is going to come back with something that you're going to love and be relevant. And I can understand the trepidation there where you might not be sure that something is going to go according to plan. And I think sometimes those worries are maybe more tied to outside factors that don't impact the creative as much. What's the timeline for this project? How much pressure is put on you by leadership to get this project done and dusted? Did they have an idea that they really want to see throw through the pipeline? And are you in a situation where you're going to have to put an idea maybe you don't believe in up against something that you haven't discovered yet? So I think sometimes in organizations, it, it can get complicated. <laughs> Um, a little bit quickly, which is unfortunate because I think sometimes you're right. Like if the if the brief or the organizational principal or tries to solve the problem ahead of time, it, it denies not just your creative team, but it denies your brand the opportunity to explore something you haven't necessarily thought of yet. And I think that's maybe the biggest detriment. What do you think that fashion and luxury brands understand about creating emotional connection and and brand affinity? Perhaps things that other brands haven't figured out yet. So I think fashion and luxury brands have a couple of things going for them that are extremely unique to their, their space. First and foremost, most fashion and luxury brands market themselves in a brand first capacity, and they're almost completely visual or completely emotionally driven. And it is designed 
to have you, the audience member, fall in love with what they are trying to, to share with you and be a part of that community. And I think the greater goal is to join and be a part of that community and be a part of that culture and add something to it in a way. Um, I think fashion and luxury brands really understand that because it's part of their core DNA. You bring all of this experience to Armando Cabral. It, it's been a ride. I'm sure this is a startup. You you have been with him for years on his advisory board. You recently became chief marketing officer. You just opened a flagship store in New York City. You're setting up partnerships. You're doing all kinds of stuff. How are you? How are you getting this off the ground? What are you? What are you doing to um, set this brand apart and spark brand desire? Wow, that is an excellent question. Um, I think the reality is is that. The brand is Armando, and it is emblematic of all of his amazing experiences in his life and his heritage. And a lot of those stories that, you know, the ones that we're telling, the ones we haven't told yet, are really like they are the, the heart and soul of the brand. And what's really incredible about that is that every every day when I walk <laughs> into the office or every day when I, I wake up and we start doing something, it's it's sort of new. Everything is you know, a different experience. I'm being asked to use different parts of my brain in order to accomplish any given goal, which I personally, as a professional, really, really love. When it comes to building affinity for Armando Cabral, it really starts with Armando and the notion that the brand is for everyone. And what we're doing is we're building a world, a world around Armando's experiences. And we're bringing everybody along with us for the ride. We're bringing artists and artisans into the brand. We're bringing people who want to experience the brand and are purchasing our pieces into the fold as well. They have a story to tell too. And I think what's really cool about that is that it's not necessarily something that's on a spreadsheet. It's not necessarily something that I could graph out or quantify on a week to week basis. Like, what are we doing? How are we performing? Um, it's more of, we're building something and we're building it from the ground up. And, you know, it might evolve into something we haven't even thought of yet. And that's what's so interesting about it. And I think that is what sets the brand apart from others in the space. I'm so uh, psyched to uh, watch this ride as it unfolds. Why do you think some brands are still neglecting the power of emotion and emotional insights in their approach to growing their business? Oh, that is a good question. Let's see. I think from my experience, it could be a few factors. Um, I've definitely been in a few roles where leadership may not appreciate fully the value that affinity brings to the table. So if you're building affinity over time, you're looking to be a brand as big as Coca-Cola, Target. You're looking to be a household name. You're looking to, to be recognized on that level. And you're looking to be part of the family, as it were, in households across the globe. And I think sometimes what could happen is the week over week or the month over month growth, you know, necessity kind of not competes with, but again, because you can't necessarily graph or chart some of these things um, as far as progress goes or performance goes, it, it makes it tough to tell that story to a board that might be comprised of very analytic individuals or people who really can only understand performance from a chart or an arrow going up or down, um, which is not to belittle 
those aspects. Performing on that level is critically important. And I'm certainly not trying to say that like we don't strive to compete there. But I think that the level of you know emotional intelligence and limbic intelligence can be a challenge to convey. So what do you think are the best ways to create limbic sparks, those moments when emotional motivation meet brand desire? I think two things. One, go for it with all the gusto. Capturing the hearts of your consumers is really going to help you capture their head also. But if you do the heart first and the head second, or at least put that connective piece first, you're definitely looking at a relationship that is going to have a much higher lifetime value. And it's going to mean more to your consumers. They're going to think of you first or think of you in a light that is potentially more positive when they're making a decision about where they're going to put their dollars. In this situation, I'm kind of reminded of the story of Coke and Pepsi. Somebody relayed this to me and I've never, ever forgotten it. Um, Back in the 80s during the Cola Wars, and for any listeners who might not remember the Cola Wars, it was a time in the 1980s where (laughs) Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola were kind of in a head-to-head marketing marketing assault on one another uh, for the hearts and minds of everybody drinking their beverages. Coke's solution to the challenge was to create heartwarming commercials focused on your memories of being a kid, your memories of having your first Coca-Cola, how wonderful having an ice cold Coca-Cola felt on a hot day. And Pepsi went ahead and did taste tests. They had people in shopping malls blindfolded and they're little Dixie cups and they're tasting the Pepsi and moreover more people were choosing Pepsi based on taste. And at the end of this, this huge research project, Pepsi kind of came out and said, we're number one because people like how we taste better. And their sales went in the opposite direction when they made this declaration. It's a wonderful proving point about how when brands really get at the heart of something and really tie into something that you feel, it, it can really succeed. And it doesn't necessarily discredit what Pepsi was doing, but it didn't, it, it won the battle and lost the war in a weird way. And I don't think they were expecting that. Yeah, that's such a great example. I absolutely love it. As a brand leader, what is it you know now that you wish you knew years ago, things that perhaps others can learn from? I think it's really important to listen to your gut. Um, and to do what you think makes the most sense. Through my career, I have definitely struggled with confidence. It has always been very difficult for me to, to put forward what I really think about you know, a certain situation or a strategy. And I wish that as you know, somebody who's maybe a little more ex- experienced and seasoned now, that my younger self had been a little more confident in themselves and gone with their gut more frequently and just push for the things that they really felt would be the, like the right direction, the right path. Um, I absolutely am somebody who have taken a few, you know, career turns that I felt, you know, I did them not necessarily because they were right for me, but because I thought it would be a good thing to do or look good on paper. Believing in yourself and knowing that what you have to say has value and is valid um, and being confident in that is really, really critically important. That is fantastic advice. Um, Amy, I have loved this conversation. I am so happy that you've joined me today on Let's Talk Limbic Sparks. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a delight. For more, go to limbicsparks.com.